You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. And we've got a little bit of, of work to do here for a, lot of, for a lot of different reasons, right? So um, many of us are probably asking, after having read this first chapter, what are we doing in Malachi? Um, and, and I think I've got a few uh, good reasons for it just to kind of get us started. So, so why Malachi? Uh, in order to know why, we kind of have to know a little bit of the history leading us, leading us into Malachi. And so let me just tell you what... Israel's situation is at this point in history, right? So, so the Old Testament really is just the story of this people, the people of God that were called Israel, this nation, right? This people um, that would belong to God. And uh, suffice it to say, they have a complicated history. Um, they're kind of in and out of exile in places like Egypt and Babylon, and it's, it's all very dramatic. You should, you should read it. It's actually quite entertaining. Um, but where we are now, this is the, the final book in the Old Testament. So the final book in all of the books written before Jesus comes, right? And Malachi is a prophet speaking into this nation, this nation of Israel. And where the nation of Israel is right now is they, they have recently, really fairly, uh, you know, probably about a century or so, removed from exile in Babylon. So they had been taken over by uh, this, this sort of great empire, the empire of Babylon, right? And now they have been led out of that. Um, they have recently rebuilt their temple, which we don't have time to, to go into it, but that's really significant because what God tells us in the Old Testament is that actually His presence dwells in the temple. So by rebuilding the temple, they are back or they are restored to essentially the presence of God in their midst. So a big big thing has happened, right? So they've been released from exile. They've been commissioned, commanded to rebuild the temple. That has now taken place, and Malachi is speaking into that situation, right? And here's, here's where I see the link in terms of why I think we need to hear from Malachi now, is that there's really, right, there's three distinct stages that Israel has experienced up to this point in history, right? One, one, they've experienced exile, which was really just kind of a time where, where the temple was a distant idea. It's like, we just, we just need to survive in Babylon. We just need to figure out what life looks like here and now. There's a sense of immediacy in that. But then they're, they're commissioned to, to rebuild the temple, right? So they're given sort of this, this vision for the future, this mission, this purpose, this great and glorious future that will be theirs, Right? to rebuild this temple, to restore the presence of God to the people of God. And of course now in Malachi, this third and final stage is that they're, they're in the time, they're in the place where the temple of God has been restored, rebuilt, and there's almost a sense of normalcy in the sense that they've kind of returned to a place that is familiar. We could use the phrase, it's the good old days. And I think that our situation here at Sojourn Montrose is really fairly analogous in that we've sort of experienced three distinct stages as well. There was a time where Sojourn Montrose was really just an idea, something that we maybe hoped for, that we longed for, but really it was just kind of like, we just need to make sure that Sojourn Heights doesn't collapse. 
and not all that long ago, Sojourn was planted and that we, we were given this vision and the work began to sort of, again, in, for analogy's sake, rebuild the temple or to build the presence of God in this neighborhood so that people might experience God's presence through His people. And there's a third stage that, that, while I don't think we've necessarily arrived at it, I think that we're on the cusp of it. And that's this stage where, um, because we have a new and more permanent space, and because it might look a little bit better, and might have sort of more of the trappings of nice American church, would lead us to think that we are sort of established, that our work is done, that it's normal, that we're even keel. And what happens in Malachi is that Malachi, this prophet, is sent to Israel because the people of God, this nation, have drifted from what the Lord commissioned and called them to do. In the comforts of what was normal, they forgot why they existed. And so we go to Malachi this morning in hopes that by looking at and heeding God's warning to Israel, we would learn from her mistakes. So let's pray towards that end. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people. I pray, Lord, that this morning that you would remind us who we are, that you would remind us whose we are. Lord, that we belong to you, that you have purchased us for yourself through the broken body and blood of your son, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, this morning that we would worship you in spirit and in truth for the good things that you have done on your behalf. Lord, call us to yourself. Remind us of your goodness and your graciousness and your faithfulness to us. Do this by your spirit. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we've got a lot of work to do um, in, a, in a short amount of time. So let's jump right in. We should have enough history um, to, to get started and kind of know where, where we're going here. So we're just going to read the first couple of verses. This is what, we're starting in verse 2. Hear the word of the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country, the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So this first sort of movement or portion that we're going to talk about is what we must remember, right? If there's something that Israel has forgotten, we're being told here what we must remember. And what we are being called to remember is God's covenant faithfulness, right? It's the first words out of the Lord's mouth from Malachi to the people of Israel are, I have loved you says the Lord. And what we see is this sort of ongoing dialogue between God and his people, right? I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, meaning Israel says, how have you loved us? They're saying, prove it. 
Remind me, show me the ways in which you have loved us. To which God replies, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but, not, but Esau I have hated. And here's the thing, we don't have time to go into depth with the story of Jacob and Esau, but suffice it to say this, right? The words that, that Malachi is using here, the word love and the love hate, those or the word hate, are covenantal terms. God is speaking in reference to His covenant promise to a man named Abraham, right? Father Abraham had many sons. That guy. He's talking about His covenant promise to Abraham, which comes to the people of Israel through His offspring, His grandson, Jacob, right? Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau is the older son. Jacob is the younger son. What God is doing is He's telling the Israelites and us by extension that He acts in accordance with His promises. Let's explore it a little bit deeper, right? Who were Jacob and Esau, right? We know that that they are part of sort of Israel's heritage, part of, part of their ancestral um, like lineage. We know that they were twin brothers, sons of Isaac, the son of Abraham. We know that Esau was the oldest. And there's a lot of cultural stuff that goes into this, but just know that being the oldest son was fairly significant um, in and among the people of Israel. And so Esau was due his father's blessing as a birthright, like that was his right by birth that he would inherit his father's blessing. And, w- and without going too deeply into the story, we know that Jacob, his, his name actually means deceiver, that, that Jacob deceived his father Isaac, who had gone blind, and he actually stole Esau's blessing. And so isn't it ironic So isn't it ironic that God would then say, is not Esau Jacob's brother, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated? Because if we were to go back and look at the story, we would know that if God's love was something that was conditional, if it was something that was uh, brought upon us by our our ability to, to be moral, that God would have loved Esau and not Jacob. Because Jacob's a deceiver. Jacob stole. Jacob's not the oldest son. There's so many things that are against Jacob, and yet God says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. You see, what God is reminding the people of Israel of, and what God is reminding us of this morning, is that God loves us, and that God's love is unconditional, because if it were conditional, he would have chosen Esau, but it's unconditional, so he chose Jacob. Now, we don't have a, a whole lot of time to, to, again, to go into this and all the theology that's behind it. It's a, it's a totally different sermon. But Romans 9 sort of backs this up for us when it says this. Though they were not yet born, and this is talking about Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, being Jacob and Esau's mother, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved. 
but Esau I have hated. So what Romans is telling us is that before they were even born, God had said, I'm going to love Jacob. And even though Jacob turned out to be a thousand times worse than Esau, he still has chosen to love Jacob. His love is unconditional. Esau's self-righteousness is not enough. God proves his unconditional love by fulfilling his covenant promise purely from grace instead of from merit. What God is telling the people of Israel is this, throughout your entire history, I have loved you in spite of the fact that you have not earned my love. God, through Malachi, is telling the Israelites and us by extension that we are established both as individuals and as a collective people purely by grace. Think Ephesians 2. By grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, so that none can boast. Let me kind of give you an illustration. Right? If my wife, Nicole, were to ask me, Marshall, why do you love me? And I were to reply, because of your pretty unwrinkled skin, my love. She would in inevitably begin asking herself, well, that's good for now, but what happens when my skin wrinkles? That's a terrible and temporary reason to love someone. Nicole needs to know that the answer to that question that she's asked is simply because I do. Some of us need to be reminded this morning that if we were to ask God, why do you love me? His answer would simply be, because I do. If Romans 9, 11 is true, then it's just because he does. That's what Malachi is inviting the Israelites to remember, not only for their security, but also for their forward progress in doing what he has called them to do. So what was it that led the Israelites to forgetting this truth in the first place? Something so wonderful, something so glorious, something so undeserved, something so unmerited. Well, this is the, the, the ultimate irony. That where God offers unconditional love, Israel returns conditional love. And that there's a sense among the people of unmet expectation, right? So when, when God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, and the people reply with, how? They're saying, what have you done for me lately? All that was good, coming out of exile, great, helping us rebuild the temple, awesome, that's here, your presence is here, great. What have you done for me lately? They'd been given this vision of a glorious future by Haggai and Zechariah, some prophets that had come before Malachi. And while much of it had come to pass, there's still much that was left undone. There was still much that was promised that has not come yet. And look, we're no different. How many of us have said, God, I'll know you love me if. God, I'll know you love me if you give me a husband or a wife. God, I'll know you love me if you give me children. God, I'll know you love me if you give me this job. Just fill in the blank. Where God offers us unconditional love, we return conditional love. Here's a test. 
Imagine 20 years from now, everyone is an executive partner married with three and a half kids except you. You're single and you're working the same job at the same level that you have now. Do you think God loves them more than you? Or better yet, just try it now. When you go to a wedding, do you think that's not fair? When you find out what someone else makes, do you think that's not fair? Here's the reality. We all do it. I do it too. It's a subtle doubt that creeps in that is the first step in forgetting God's unconditional love. It's this subtle doubting that, that the fullness of God's promises will actually come to pass. That, that because we haven't seen all of it yet, we think that it's just not going to come. In that, yes, not everything has taken place. In that this glorious future that Haggai and Zechariah had prophesied about has not completely come to pass, but much of it has. It's that subtle doubt. It's that what have you done for me lately that leads us to begin doubting and thus forgetting that God has an unconditional love for us. So that's what we must remember. We must remember God's unconditional love for us. Here's why we drift. Here's why we forget. It starts with that subtle doubt. But that subtle doubt ultimately leads us to a place of great arrogance. Let's keep reading. Verse 6 says this, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. By offering polluted, oh, I'm sorry, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar, but you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. And again, we get this back and forth, this back and forth. And what was simply, how have you loved us, prove it, has now turned into, but we say. Right, so, so this God who was to be their father, who was to be their master, who was to be their king, who was to be their authority, is making proclamations over them and they are saying, well, I don't think you're right. Prove, again, prove it. How have I wronged you? Show me. This subtle, perhaps even reasonable doubt has turned into an outright an arrogant dispute with God. You can feel it. Israel is the proverbial prosecutor cross-examining God and holding up the scorecard of their conditional love. By withholding proper worship, by withholding the truth of God's promises, the priests of Israel, those who were meant to guide Israel spiritually in the way of the Lord. The priests are not only choosing to forget individually, but as Israel's spiritual leaders, they are leading the nation to forget as a whole. And this arrogant heart leads them to a place that is utterly, utterly, utterly. Read what, read what the Lord says next. When you offer blind animal sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? 
And now, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? And again, all this can be kind of confusing, especially if we don't have kind of an understanding of old Levitical law and every, everything else that maybe we think is boring or inconsequential that is actually neither of those. But suffice it to say that, that when the priests were meant to bring an offering, it was meant to be an offering without blemish in that it was to pay for or to make restitution for the sins of the people. And yet these priests who, again, this is not, this is not some innocent thing of like, oh, they didn't know or like, we didn't catch that little spot on him. That it was these priests who knew better and who were actively choosing to worship God in a way that he had told them he could not be worshipped, in a way that was tainted, that was polluted, that was imperfect, that was not according to the way that God had always meant for it to be. The priests are skimping on their worship to God because they believe God is skimping in his love for them. And God calls this evil, and I think he calls this evil for two reasons. Because what they are doing is deceptive and it's manipulative. Let me, let me explain what I mean. What the priests are doing is deceptive because they're trying to get away with something that they know is evil. They know it's wrong. They know the word of the Lord front and back. This was an oral culture at the time. So it wasn't just like, oh, let me go back to the book and see if I can remember. It was, no, I've memorized this. I know this is wrong. And I'm going to try to get away with it anyway. And then the second thing, it's manipulative. Why? It's manipulative because by their evil, they're trying to gain what is good. So that when God comes and says, you're giving me offerings, right? They say, yeah, of course we are. Now, blessing, please. And that's evil. So verse 10 says this. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. And so here's what God is telling the people of Israel, the, the priests of Israel. He's saying, look, you're, this worship that you're giving deceptively and manipulatively has no bearing, no consequence. It's worthless to me. In fact, this temple that we've gone to such great lengths, not only to promise and then to build and then to enjoy, is now rendered useless. I would rather that you shut the door to the temple than that you come to my temple and worship me in vain. It would be better to shut the doors so that nobody could enter his presence than for people to enter his presence and worship in vain. It's better not to worship than to worship deceptively or in a spirit of manipulation. And why is it better? I think there's, there's two, two reasons that, that it's better. One, you're not living an illusion and that that's what, that's what the priests are living here. They're living an illusion, an illusion of holiness, an illusion of morality, an illusion of uprightness before God, an illusion of belonging to God. 
But they're not just living an illusion. They're actively convincing themselves that they are true worshipers and that God owes them. And this is why. This is why I am more concerned about nominal Christians than outright pagan non-Christians. It's more dangerous to be a church attender in community reading the Bible and be worshiping yourself than to do so openly. At least the non-Christian is self-aware. The nominal Christian is tricking him or herself, and self-delusion is a dangerous thing, maybe the most dangerous, because it leads us to this place. So we've seen what we must remember. We've seen why we forget, right? And that we begin to doubt God's goodness. We begin to love God with a conditional love as He loves us unconditionally. And then when He doesn't meet our expectations or when He doesn't live up, we not only begin to doubt, but we actually begin to actively question. And so we skimp in our worship of God because we believe that He's skimping in His love for us. So how do we get back? How do we get back? Verse 11 says this, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now, there's three problems with this verse. The first one is this. It tells us that incense, God says that incense will be offered among the nations. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Bible tells us and God tells us that this could actually only happen in the temple. That it, that it couldn't happen outside of God's presence. It could only happen in, in, in the temple. And now God is saying that it will happen among the nations. Second problem is this. It says that that offering will, will be a pure offering. And yet, what the Bible tells us in the Levitical law and, and throughout the Old Testament is that offerings were only pure if they were given in accord with the law. And God himself has just accused Israel of giving polluted offerings. So you got two things that, that, at least at this point, to me, seem like an impossibility. And then the third problem is this. He says, my name will be great among the nations. But the Bible tells us that, that the way that God's name would be great among the nations is, is through the testimony of His people. So like through Israel's flourishing, through Israel's giving worship to God, through the priests giving right offerings to God, that then the nations would see that the Lord was great. So how can this happen when we have an arrogant and vain worshiping people? And it's not just like, oh, well, it's two different sentences, so maybe like verse 10 and verse 11 are grammatically connected. And what that means for us is that verse 11 is the direct result of verse 10. Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. 
and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. How's that going to work? Well, one of the, the benefits that you and I have of living in this particular time in history is that um, we, we have Genesis through Revelation. So we have all the books written before Jesus came, and we have all the books written after Jesus came. And in the book of Hebrews, we read this. The book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 12, says this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, or outside the door, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So look, the the people of God were going to be made, made right with God through right offerings, and yet they were giving polluted offerings. And so their holiness is in question, it's in doubt. And what the Bible tells us is that Jesus came, and because Jesus came, the door was shut. That when verse 10 says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that when we go to Hebrews chapter 13 and we read that Jesus suffered outside the door, what we begin to understand is that the door to God's presence, that Jesus' access to God was closed to him so that that door might be open to us. So how do we get back to God's unconditional love? We look to Jesus. We look to the one for whom the door was shut so that the door could be opened for us. We look to the one who was given as a perfect offering when all we could give were polluted offerings. We return by remembering. You and me, we are Israel. We are Jacob. Nothing in us deserves God's love but He still gives it to us. We continually wander from it, and yet He loves us enough in our drifting to send us people like Malachi to remind us what? I have loved you. You see, if forgetting God's unconditional love is what led to falling away for Israel, then the converse is also true. Remembering God's unconditional love leads us to returning. And here's where we get down to the nitty-gritty for Sojourn. Sojourn ultimately exists for the exact same reason that Israel exists. Sojourn exists to introduce people to and remind people of God's unconditional love. You see, God has always intended to have a people to Himself, both to whom and through whom He reveals Himself to the world. That people was Israel in the Old Testament. That people is the church now through the broken body and blood of Jesus Christ today. 
And so we exist to see God exalted among the nations, to see His worship extend beyond our borders. So when we say as Sojourn that we are joining the Father, Son, and Spirit in the historic work of redemption, what we mean when we say we are historic is that our why, that our reason for being is the same why, the same reason for being that colors the entire narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and that is that God would have a people to Himself, a people to whom and through whom He would reveal Himself. You see, Israel and Malachi has drifted from their why. And the greatest danger that Sojourn faces, the greatest danger that we face, is not a change of vision or a change of strategy or even a lack of clarity about vision or strategy. The greatest danger that we face is forgetting the unconditional love that God has for us. Because if we forget the unconditional love of God for us, we will drift from what God has called and created us to be. Our vision to make disciples, to multiply parishes, and to plant churches is meaningless if it's simply a law unto itself or if it's just duty. But it's empowering. It's empowering if it is driven by love. So make no mistake, sojourners, while I'm celebrating the fact that we have new space, while I'm celebrating the fact that there are almost three times more people here on a Sunday than when we first started, we are in a dangerous season. We are somewhere between that forming season and that normalizing season that Israel experienced. But if in normalizing, if in becoming more steady, if in becoming more rooted, if in buying pulpits and, and seat back trays, <laughs> if in those things we forget why we exist, which is to propagate the love of God, then we will drift. So this is why we gather here today and this is why we gather all throughout the week as parishes. This is my, my, my one-minute apologetic for, for the parish in the one minute that I'm going over. You need the neighborhood parish because isolation leads to forgetting, and as we've seen today, forgetting leads to falling. That if you are left to your own devices, if you're left to your own mind, if you're sorting all this out in your own brain, you are going to be more and more likely to question the love of God for you because you will rack up instance after instance in your life that you have interpreted as God's unkindness to you when really the truth of God's word is that all things work together for good for those who love him. But you don't just need the parish because isolation leads to forgetting. You also need the neighborhood parish because your heart has blind spots. Israel needed the prophetic word of Malachi to expose those blind spots. And here's the thing. We need one another to expose our blind spots. So let's conclude with that and let's pray Let's pray that the Lord would make us a people who are consistently remembering the love of God for us.